Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, aka that hat I always wear, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. For a little bit of context, we just wanted you to know that a lot of these were recorded before quarantine. And as we know, a lot has changed in 2020. So again, please stay safe out there. And enjoy the new episodes of And the Writer Is. Welcome to And the Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's incomparably iconic, magnificently brilliant entrepreneur is not just a judge on television's most popular music program, is not just a fashion trend-setting designer, but is also a nice local ska kid from the OC. No doubt her many Grammy, Billboard, and MTV awards come from not only her front woman days of one of the most influential bands, but also from her international multi-platinum successful solo career. With many tens of millions of units sold worldwide, this woman's most impressive virtue is always on display, her humility. All the way from a couple miles away, or Oklahoma, this mother and fiance is a model for how all of us can evolve, not just as songwriters, artists, and fans, but as family people. And the writer is, let me reintroduce my co-writer and my friend, the great Gwen Stefani. Oh my gosh, you are such an amazing writer. Wow. And you, and you probably did that in like two seconds as well. <laughs> exactly. That would take me like a month to try to rewrite it and look up all the spelling on spell check. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Nobody ever looks at the spelling. I will say that. (laughs) That's kind of a win. But um, uh, it's good to see you. too. I feel like we spend a lot of time on Zoom these days. It's so weird, too, because I didn't discover you um, had this podcast until after I worked with you, I think. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think. No, yeah. I mean, that that probably makes sense. And uh, uh, I, I appreciate you being a longtime listener now. <laughs> yes. Um, but let's, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of this is, you know, Wikipedia-able and you've had a lot of, um, you've had plenty of interviews about 
your career thus far, but I just kind of want to talk about it similar to how we talked about it the first time we met, you know, it's, it's just, you start, tell me about your childhood. You're, you're in, (laughs) let's, let's just, let's just start with, with your family. Tell me about your family growing up. Um, okay. Um, which, by the way, everyone listening, um, I didn't know who Ross was when I met him, but I could tell the moment that I met him over Zoom, by the way, we still haven't been in the flesh ever, um, <laughs> <laughs> that he was uh, special, magical, and um, that we were going to be homies in some kind of way and collaborators. But anyways, my childhood. Um, um, well... I grew up in a really, like, I always try to say, like, the Brady Bunch, except for that my parents are still married, <laughs> and sure. I don't have stepbrothers and sisters, but it was sort of, I feel like, very um, idealistic in a lot of ways. Um, my parents met when they were in high school. They went to Anaheim High School. They met when they were, like, 15. They're still in love. They still hold hands. They're still, like, they're, like, the ultimate married couple, in my opinion. And I'm the second born. My older brother is Eric Stefani. He was a very uh, talented, um, eccentric, hyper, um, creative artist basically my whole life that I look up to I looked up to look up to still um and then I have a little sister who's now a school teacher and she's the only one that was really smart and like went to Berkeley and then UCLA and now she's a school teacher she has three kids and then I have a little brother who you just met Todd Stefani who does like all of my kind of creative stuff with me he films me and he's also my homie and we do everything together. So basically grew up as kind of a passive person. Um, didn't have any dreams, much dreams or anything. Just didn't know what I was going to do. I think the main thing that I've discovered was I had dyslexia, which I just recently started kind of talking about publicly, not meaning to, but just because these intimate conversations that we have, is just the truth. And I think that that was a thing that really made me um, the kind of person that I was then kind of in the shadow because because of my fear of that but didn't really realize that that was why and also because i had a brother that was overshadowing me with his incredible talent so um didn't really think of myself as anything more than just a girl that played barbies and you know did what my brother told me to do what kind of music was around the house um a lot of music so my dad and mom were into bluegrass and folk. Um, so we listened to like everything. And also, cause I was 1969, it was like all about the seventies and like all of that kind of, um, I guess you'd call it yacht rock now, um, which is my favorite kind of music. Um, but yeah, we listened to anything from a lot of Bob Dylan to, you know, um, Emmylou Harris, um, just all over the map. But my, my dad played guitar, um, they used to actually be in a band together. Um, my mom played um, auto harp. What was there? <laughs> 50s, 60s, 70s era. Auto harp is uh, a lost art. Um, what kind of? What was their band called? They didn't really have a band name. I mean, the thing is, my dad is an Italian American. My mom, they're both from Anaheim. They, they sort of like my dad had to work his way up. Like he was the firstborn and sort of um, put himself through college and 
then they got married and, you know, had, we were like their dream is just to have kids. And that was to have a family. And we were Catholic. We went to church every week. It was very like, it seemed very typical, you know, but then looking back at it, it was actually quite unusual because it was so typical, you know what I mean? And it was sort of like um, traditional and our family was the way that they brought us up. Like we were, um, our family is the most important thing. And these are our morals. These are our values. And you would never be in a band and think you're going to make it like that was your hobby. And you're going to go to school and you're going to like do something with your life. Um, but well, we've talked a lot about how religion yeah. is is a you know it's obviously a big part or spirituality and your connection to you know to religions is really powerful. Um, but you all, one of the things you mentioned a few times is how the people around you. I guess we can get more into this once we get into the the band, but that you would stay at home, that you were such a good kid. You were like the, you were the goodest, <laughs> you know, I like- to be good. I want to be good. I still want to be good. And I think that my parents instilled really good morals. And um, because of being a Catholic girl and learning all those things and being in youth group and um, everything that probably people think I'm in this like band, this ska punk, whatever kind of band. And I was, and I was exposed to a lot of things. And, um, but I just never, I just always wanted to be a good person. I lived at home till I was 26 years old. And that was just because I really liked my parents and I, I didn't know what else to do. Like I was going to school. Um, when I went to school because of my learning challenges in high school, I, I almost failed high school. Like I almost didn't graduate, but not because I'd ever done drugs or, um, had sex or any of the things that you would think. Think, um, it was because I just had a hard time. I had to like cheat my way through to just try to barely graduate, you know, and um, I'm not a cheater, but I had to survive, you know. Um, it wasn't until I had children that I realized that um, I was probably had a learning disability. My little brother, who was four years younger, he was able at that time to figure it out. So he got to go to special classes and get some some coping mechanisms, but, um, but at that time they didn't know a lot about dyslexia. And so, um, but I think it's one of my gifts because dyslexia has given me the gift that I have to be a songwriter and do everything that else I do. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing that I, I found that that's something you and I can share is being, you know, having dyslexia and it's a, it gives you an opportunity to see a lot of things backwards. And to me, I found it to be an advantage that whenever you see words backwards, it always ends up being um, or or intertwined or letters being backwards or whatever it is. It it gives you the ability to think of phrases you wouldn't normally think of. And and it starts for me, I I think it's actually an advantage in a lot of ways Um, as long as I don't have to read in public. Well, I I feel like also it helps you to, um, in music, there is no rules. So for me, when I first wrote my first song, lyrically, I was like, oh, like I can say so much in this, these few amount of words and I don't have to 
follow. I don't even know what a vowel really is. You know what I mean? Like I was like, I don't have to like follow. This is a long time ago. Like I don't have to follow any rules. Like I can just say it all. And it, and this word can mean so much. And the, like a thesaurus was like everything to me. Like when you used to be able to get those little spell check thesauruses that are like this big and they would just, it was so exciting. Like I'm a researcher. Like I love to like look up a, a theme and, and, and if you give me a theme, then I can run with it. And I can, and I can like, like I will be obsessively on that theme until I, someone says, you've got to stop. You know what I mean? So it, that's one of my gifts, I think as well is to be able to be obsessive and to be able to like roll with the theme. And, um, I rolled with that theme with songwriting. As soon as I discovered that I could do it, which I had no idea because Eric, my older brother was the one that did all the songwriting. I just, I just did whatever he told me. Like, and I looked up to him and I just wanted to, um, I was always just come over to his house. He'd be up all night long smoking cigarettes. He smoked cigarettes. Um, and, but he wasn't a bad guy <laughs> at all, but he, he would do animation. So he'd be up all night and he'd be like, he'd have peanut butter sandwiches and Fritos and, you know, be like writing all these songs. Like we would have band practice and then he would have written like three songs in the night and we'd come back feeling like fools, like we have nothing to offer. And Eric wrote don't speak while we were like at home. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so it was like always in his shadow of his creativity. I never really like dove too much into mine. And it wasn't until I well, had like a trauma that I had to get, get those songs out and yeah. realize that I could do it, you know? But how did you learn that you should be even a singer? I mean, obviously, you're in a family where music's a big thing. So I'm sure you sang a lot growing up. But there's a difference between singing around a house and then, you know, being in a band with your, you know, with your brother. Um, well, tell me about how, how, you know, no doubt sort of how it starts. Okay. Well, first of all, singing wise, I think the first time that I, I, I always sang, like I would be the one in the back of the car going to church, singing every lyric to all those songs, like on the radio. And my parents would be like, why do you know all this? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. But, um, I just, I think that like, I, I saw Avita that musical, um, when that came out, my uncle and aunt took us to LA and we saw that. And I got really into that record. Um, I got really, and then also the other big record was Sound of Music. First time I saw that, we went, you know, to the Cynodome in Orange County. And it was like, it was just such a huge impact on me. I think everything about it, like the Catholic nun, the, you know, the, the kids, like the costumes, the, the story, the love story, um, just so much about that was a huge in, impact on me. So I would be singing those songs and I could tell that when I physically sang, it felt really good. Like, and I felt like I, I knew I could sing it. Like I could, it wasn't like I was a great opera singer or something, but I somehow I liked how it felt when I would sing. And as a little girl, I didn't go, oh, I want to be a singer when I grow up. But by the time I was in high school, I was like, dang it, if I could be a con 
Chucky Fried Chicken jingle writer and like I could sing those commercials, I bet I could do that. Or if my parents would let me, I could be the girl at the Disneyland Hotel in the like the saloon being like, where are you from? Well, I'm from Anna. You know, I could sing to, I could do that. I could wear the feather boa, like, but they wouldn't let me because it, it was late at night and you couldn't stay out late at night because it's dangerous. But um, yeah, I just had those kinds of dreams, like little ones. Um, and you know, the Annie soundtrack, that was huge when that movie came out um, as a child. You know, Sean Cassidy, that was the first um, single I ever got. I have a picture of me, like, on a microphone with the Sean Cassidy record. But, um, you know, we used to play house, and my dad had built us this, like, playhouse in our backyard, and me and my cousin would play, and everything was sung. It was a musical. You know what I mean? We were geeks. I love but it. But I, I, I was also only 17 when my brother was, like, you know, really getting into ska music and they had discovered this music that was from, you know, England and this band called Madness. And it was really Madness was the band that he really got into. And, you know, he was older than me. So he would be like, okay, now we're listening to this and bring the records home. And it was like, hey, and new MTV and everything that everybody else was into. But when we discovered Madness, it felt like this kind of underground weird music. And it was they really sang about their culture in Camden town and London. So that became like this big, like, you know, thing that we looked up to like, Oh, England and, and London and, and, and that, that music and stiff records. And like, then that led us into like reggae and all the other ska bands that were, they were all united and everybody, it was like a scene. And, um, and then we slowly discovered that there was like, a scene in Orange County of, and and around like in Riverside that there was all these mods and scars. And so my brother, he was older. So he would go like to like circle, I think it was like called circle city. And it was this, you know, in Orange County, you could go and there was like a club where all these people would hang out. I didn't get to go to that. I was too young. But then even later on studio K, I think it was called at Knott's Berry Farm, you would go on a certain night and like people that were like into ska and mod would be there and you would see like, oh my God, they're from like Buena Park, but he's dressed like me. Like he's dressing like how I dress. You know what I mean? And it was a lot of, it was mostly guys. Um, was seemed like there was a lot of girls in the scene and there certainly wasn't any other ska girls in, in my high school at Loera in Anaheim. So, um, it was just really all about kind of finding your identity through the music and trying to be wanting to be different and trying to fit in. But, you know, I had an older brother that kind of took me under his wing. So I kind of automatically was in that, that world. When you guys did your first show, uh, where was it? And that's a, you're, you know, if people have seen you perform, you embody it. You love the movement on stage. You love like the part. It's not just you singing. It's that you love being on stage. There's such a joy in that. Did you have that from show number one or were you, do you ever get nervous or was it just sort of, this is so, this is, this is cathartic. You know, why, what is it that makes you a front woman the way you are? And were you always that way? That's a good question. Honestly, um, when the band started back in the day, how it started was we were having a, you know, high school talent show. And so Eric, my brother, um, he had a bunch, I mean, there must've been like 15 people on stage and we were all in this band called Apple Corps. That was going to be our name. And I had made the dress that basically, um, 
Maria in The Sound of Music wears when she sings, I have confidence in sunshine. And it was this like tweed dress that the actual kids inside the movie say to her, that's the ugliest dress I've ever seen. And so I had me and my mom made that dress so I could wear it on stage when we were going to do the selector on my radio, which is a, a band, a ska band we used to listen to. And we, Eric was playing the accordion and um, all these other guys. And basically there was a guy at my school. He was basically one of the only African-American kids um, that wanted to start a ska band. And this is pre before he had dreadlocks, like, but he was ska as well. And his name was John Spence. And so he was the one that convinced Eric to like get a keyboard. And then there was another kid called Jerry McMahon who didn't even play guitar, but my dad taught him a few chords. And then he was the guitar player. Like it was, we were kids, children, you know? Um, I didn't think much about it, but Eric was just kind of like, you're going to sing. But I was not the lead singer. I was the background singer and John was the lead singer. And John had like all this charisma. Like he would copy basically all those, like a fish Bone or like all these like you know bad brains and like all these bands that were very like crazy and he would do backflips on stage and it was all about like being hyper and like punk so it was like a ska punk i don't know it was just us who knows trying to find something but yeah when i first went on stage that day as apple core I had literally the lyrics on a paper written out and I was like on my microphone, <laughs> like singing the words. Um, cause I couldn't remember the words, of course not. Um, and that was my first experience of being on stage. And then we decided we were going to really make a band. It was going to be Apple core and then everybody fights and drops out. And eventually it turned into no doubt. And, um, the first show we ever played, it was probably a, it's hard for me to really remember, but it, like a backyard party, but we did a lot of playing in the garage, you know, just practicing fun. Like, but, but it was fun. Like they were shows for ourselves. Like my dad would film us, you know, on the, we had our big, huge, like V8, what are those cameras called? Like, uh, my brother's here, my little brother's here. Um, VHS, VHS when they first came out, you know? So, but like, I don't remember. I just remember playing these like backyard parties and then the cops would come and my parents let us use their brand new Astro van. And like, you know, it's so weird to remember all these things. Well, what's what's interesting is during this time, um, when you guys are first becoming a band, there's such a, there's this scene that's brewing uh, out of the Northwest that's really sort of, you know, alternative music being grunge or alternative music being something different than the scene that was happening in the OC. You know, what, what's happening between, you know, early 90s up to Tragic Kingdom is, you know, are, are some of these other bands that are, are, are also big, like Sublime and, and some of these, there's a movement that's happening. Uh-huh. I think it's it, it seems like everyone was trying to move to the north northwest and it seems like what you guys were doing had this authentic southern california sound. Did you realize that you were doing something you know or when did you realize you were doing something commercially relevant? Was it when you got your record deal? You know, well, was it go back to like 
the long story short version of to try to evolve into the sound was what happened was the first year we were together, John, who really is the ultimately the person that named the band, no doubt, and wanted us to be a band and, you know, um, made Eric at the keyboard. He ended up killing himself the first year we were together. He was 18 years old and had zero idea that he had any issues. Um, it was right before Christmas. We were going to be having our big concert, which was going to be at um, uh, the Roxy. It was like our first big thing. Um, and basically that was like a huge, obviously, tragedy. And um, we decided as kids, we were 17, you know, 18. And we were like, we he would want us to keep going, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And I think that I can remember after that, like, Basically, we had zero idea we were, we knew we were making the kind of music that would never get on the radio um, because the kind of music we were doing was quirky and fun and silly. And we knew that Nirvana and all that was coming and that was just rock and cool. And, and we would never, we were geeks that would never get there. Um, but for whatever reason, because I think we were born into this scene that was kind of already happening, like you could go, the first really big show we ever played was at Fender's Grand Ballroom, which was a place where um, it was in Long Beach, which is like one town over from Anaheim. And it was like a big ballroom. And we were the opening band, I think, of a, probably 15 different bands. There was like knife fights. It was a lot of skinheads because there was like the good skinheads and the bad skinheads. And when we made our band, it was like we had all different kind of people in our band. And our, the idea was that we were like this imitation generation of the third wave of ska, which was in the seventies, they were trying to like, you know, be united and be anti-racist. And we, we thought, oh, that's so cool. Like, yeah, you know, that's gross. Racism sucks. And like, you know, so we thought we were doing something as children, like to try to be part of something to make a difference, you know? Um, but yeah, I'm saying like, I remember after John died and then Alan, who was going to then sing with me, he was uh, a kid at the time that was in the band. He was playing trumpet. And then he moved on to being like, sing we were singing harmonies together. And then he at 15 got his girlfriend pregnant and then he was out. So then, <laughs> so then I, I ended up doing this show and I can remember the show very specifically, um, walking from the show to the car afterward. And it was a club and I had like one of those out of body experiences on stage where I just, it, whatever God gave me, um, it just came out and it was there and it was like, okay, this bitch knows how to do this shit right here. <laughs> like, I just like, I knew what to do. And I just was like, I just was, it was like, I was in completely a, at a, a different, the, the person you see on stage was there and it was like, I know how to do this. I don't know how I know how to write these songs and I know how to do this. And I don't know how nobody taught me. And it just, it was felt very like, um, real and there and present. And it was from that moment on, I just had this confidence, um, and, and just obsession with wanting to figure out what the next outfit was going to be that I was going to wear when we did our next show. And it was, we had a band account. We had, you know, um, we were just all about, like, we had the flyers, we had, we, we promoted ourselves, like, but we were already built into this, this kind of like scene. Um, then slowly 
as time was going on, our music was changing. Like we were incorporating, we were being like inspired by bands like Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, who who were getting really big fishbone and, and like, um, even like, you know, bands that were sort of fusing different kinds of genres together because we didn't want to just do ska because ska started feeling a little bit like there was so many ska bands coming out. It started, I think, feeling like we're not just that, you know what I mean? We, we, you know, Tony was in the band now. Red Hot Chili Peppers was his favorite band. Flea was his idol. So then we were doing, so we were like starting to like, fuse things together. I think that at that time, our audience started to be a little offended about that. Like we started not being just a ska band. And I mean, this is over. I don't know how many years we're talking about a few years, but um, we, we just evolved into whatever we were from just the group of people that were in the band at that point. Then we had Tom who was this heavy metal guy from Irvine that like was in a heavy metal band with his sister, you know what I mean? And then we got Adrian who was basically a liar who said that he had been playing drums, but literally was just a fan of no doubt and learned our demo and then tried out. And because he was really good looking and, and hardworking, we chose him, you know what I mean? So Obviously, you evolve with the different members that were coming in, and um, and that's I don't know what the question was, but yeah, it's definitely not trying to make it, um, but but definitely trying to make the next show. Like, when are we going to get another show? There, all the bands that you mentioned that were um, that were inspiration for you guys. None of them have a a woman in the band. I mean. What is it like? Did, did was that fun to be? Oh well, we're we're the band in the circuit with the being you as the front person, or was it sort of this is so strange that you're the only the only front woman out of that entire? I still one of my other gifts is that I don't remember much. Um, <laughs> so I think that um, I think that's probably why because I was very very passive. I didn't really think a lot about it. I didn't. I you know the one thing I did know is that I had the safety of the fact that I had my older brother in the band who you know was my I did everything with. He was my best friend, um, and he was kind of the band leader because he wrote all the songs. He, nobody else barely could play their instruments. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, Tom was actually really good. Um, and Tony was good too, but, uh, and Adrian became really good, but I'm saying <laughs> I didn't, um, think about that. I just knew that they were very protective of me. And when John died, you know, I'm the one that said to Tony, like way, way early on, like basically the first time I ever saw him come on Mel's lane in Anaheim to come try out for no doubt, he walked across, you know, out of his car with his bass and his Hirachi sandals. And I was like, I'm in love with you and I'm going to kiss you one day. <laughs> and it was like an obsession and, you know, finally got him to kiss me, but it was understood that nobody gets with me. Like I'm off limits, you know? So, um, and I was never like a sought after in high school. Like, no, I wasn't like a, like, oh, there's a cute girl or anything. It was like, no, nobody, you know what I mean? I didn't have any boyfriends. Like, that's it wasn't. So hard to, that's so hard to imagine when, you know, I mean, I know this is, like you said, you lived with your parents till so you were 26. And that's really, you know, tragic kingdom coming out kind of 
era. But like to think of the Don't Speak video and, and you know, all the spider webs and all those videos that were coming out at that time and to think they, that you weren't sought after, that has to be something that was internal. And no, not- it was not. It was not because I just wasn't. I was a very slow, I I blossomed in a very slow way. Like in high school, I was quite like chunky and, you know, nerdy and like not in the cool group or anything. Trust me. And I'm, um, it wasn't until like, cause I basically graduated at 17. The band started right around the end of my senior year. And it was, you know, I went to um, Disneyland graduation where you go and stay up all night. That was where I had my graduation party. Um, and uh, yeah, and then me and Tony started seeing each other, but it was behind everyone's back. And when John died, that's when everyone kind of found out that we had kissed and we were together. And um, and basically at that point, um, things changed because I felt like I had Tony as my like best friend, like, we did everything together. And then I had Eric and I was in this band. And so I didn't really think about being the only girl. I just felt like I was, you know, I had my boyfriend and I had my best friend and my brother and it was like a family. And I didn't really think about it. I don't know why. And when we played these shows, there were other bands that came later. Like there was like dance hall crashers. They had a girl, you know, um, there was, I'm trying to think of some other ones, but, um, but that was way, we're talking way early, you know, once we started like getting to really be established and have like a manager and like, um, well, once you guys, um, you know, when it's all changes when tragic kingdom comes out, you know, the, you had a couple albums before that, but there's something different when you have, you know, just a bunch, a handful of smashes plus Grammy, nominations and the whole thing um i imagine that there are plenty of bands after that where people emulate you know and try to be similar to what you guys were doing you know it when you become famous how does that affect a person who had been quiet and private except for when she's on stage what was it like to bring that with you outside of performing. Does that make sense? I think really the big thing that happened was when Eric, um, Eric left the band, that was when my life was starting. Like I was like, I don't even know how to exist because that was everything. That was my whole, like i I had just started kind of started writing songs like the first song that I wrote on my not on my own but lyrically and like melodies and things was the song called different people um that eventually ended up on the Obama Obama playlist which is just so crazy to me because it's like I never even know how to write a song but um but Eric was writing all the music up at that point we would write together he would love for me to be sitting there writing with him or whatever but um but when he was going to leave, it was like, what do we do? Like, you know, um, he was going to Cal Arts. He was, you know, he'd already ha- worked at The Simpsons as an animator for 10 years. Like, but he wanted to go to Cal Arts. Um, and he was driving back and forth in his Nissan Sentra. And it just was like not working out. And then at the same time, basically, Tony dumps me. So I was like, 
living at my parents, going to college, but barely like, you know, getting through. I did way better in college than I did in high school because I wanted to do good. Um, and I had Tony to help me with all of my work because <laughs> he was really good. <laughs> during This is during Tragic Kingdom or before? The making of Tragic Kingdom because the Tragic Kingdom, remember, like I had written Just a Girl with Tom probably a year and a half before it came out. That song, <laughs> you know what I mean? So like we, this, we had we had been trying to put a record out for so long because um, we put a, a record called Don't uh, No Doubt out that got basically shelved. Uh, we We put it out. We went on tour in our van and we were playing next to like record stores and stuff. And our record wasn't even in there and they wouldn't give us the record to even sell out of the back of our truck. So we were just like, nobody was at these shows. It was terrible. We that came on trauma or is that? that was, no, that was on Interscope. Okay. So meanwhile, we were so mad about it that we decided to put our own record out behind their backs. And we put out this record called the Beacon Street Collection, which is basically all the the duds from the tragic kingdom leading that we knew weren't going to be on there. That was just a quirky, weird record for the, for the fans. And we kept saying, a well, record's going to come out. It's going to come out. It never did. And so by the time tragic kingdom was finally, cause they had put us in with this uh, producer called Albie Gluten, who had done like the Bee Gees and like, we were like so excited. We were working with this amazing guy. We loved him. And then they pulled the plug on that. Um, then they finally put us in with, um, Matthew Wilder, who wrote, ain't nothing going to break my stride. And they were like, this is the guy you're going to work with. Well, at that point, I don't think my brother was really good at like collaborating or wanting to be, you know, diluted or even helped at all. And so he was having all those issues. We were trying to work with Matthew, but Matthew was incredible because Matthew was, we could never finish songs, you know, you worked with me. So you see how I write. Imagine that I was doing all of it, like all of the melodies at this point, all of the lyrics and, you know, the guys were, we were just homemade. Like we didn't know anything like about anything. <laughs> and so it took us so long to finish anything. And so Albie was, I'm not Albie, um, Matthew was there to help really help us learn how to finish the songs. And, and that took forever. Like that took forever. But during that time after Tony broke up with me is when I really started writing because I had to get that out. I was out and Eric was quitting. So my life was over and I wrote one after another. It was like, you know, um, a song called ended on this. Don't speak all of them. Like was, it was all during that time, but it took a long time. Um, and that's when tragic kingdom was finally finished. And Eric had quit at that point. And he said he would finish the record. And there was a, the last song I think I wrote was, uh, was a song called ended on this. And I remember going in with Eric and it was really weird because it was like he was still going to be on the record and he was still playing on it, but he was quit. And it was like, it was a weird feeling. And Tony was, we were broken up, but we we're still in the band and it was awful. After it was success, successful, did, how did that change either Eric's choice to leave? And, you know, it was interesting that you say it was awful because I think a lot of people assume, oh, if you're if you're having a really successful album, a lot of musicians who aspire to be musicians look at like that's the pinnacle is to have these hits out there. But meanwhile, the behind the scenes are really complicated. You know, it, it was, was super when, complicated. Like I can't even believe it. Like I can't even. There's no way for me to. And we've talked a lot about this, um, me and you, um, 
off, off this podcast in our writing sessions, but so many layers were happening, um, at that time. And you asked me like, how did I be like all of a sudden the public person or whatever, um, a famous person, but that was a really like an overnight thing. Cause it was like, basically they decided to put out just a girl and, you know, K rock, which was the only station we cared about getting on told us the program director said it would take an act of God for no doubt to be on this radio station. And so that's another proof that God is real. Um, and we got, I, I remember calling in, like trying to get, you know, play no doubt, play just a girl and, and all sitting around and recording it on our, our, our tapes and we got, you know, we got on the radio and we went to record and make the video for just a girl. And, um, we, we went straight from that video shoot to the plane and we went on tour and we were gone for two and a half years on tour. Um, that's where it was really, really, really hard because I was so in love and dependent on Tony and we had to sit in interviews and talk about a record that I wrote about my heart being literally sliced and bleeding still, um, and sit with this guy that was, was my best friend, um, and then he was being like, how could you leave her? Cause then suddenly I look like I'm all hot and like, <laughs> you know, like, well, how could you do that? Like, she's great. Um, but it wasn't until suddenly I'm famous that people think I'm great. Cause I was just nobody before, like just a girl came out, you know? Um, so it was like every, every interview. And then on top of that, <clears throat> it was just me and Tony having the issues, but the, everybody wanted to take me cause I was a girl and put me and I was a singer and it was my story, right? My voice out here. And that was a real problem for the band. You know, it was really, you know, you can't be on this, you, you know, unless we're all on the album cover, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. And unless, you know, I guess if it's a fashion magazine, you can be on it, but we have to be part, you know, it was all these, like all of these politics between us in the band. Um, no matter how much you tell people like being in a band sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't. <laughs> I, we had a lot of fun together and, you know, we had a lot of chemistry Yeah, and, um, and we were really good um, on stage because we practiced really hard and we took it seriously and we, we knew we were good and everybody had something to contribute as far as what role they played live. I think as a live band, because we played for nine years before just a girl ever got on the radio, by the time we got, you know, basically forced by trauma records at this point to go on tour opening for Bush and the Goo Goo Dolls. Um, basically we knew that I knew like, it didn't even matter. I'd put my rollerblades on before <laughs> after sound check, I would do my little rollerblade and then I would get my makeup on, put my, my outfit, the one outfit I had to wear on that tour and I knew I was going to, it didn't matter if there was like a third of the, the audience, you know, and these arenas were full, I was going to kill it. And by the end, like they were loading in people. And I knew by the time I did Just a Girl, I would have slaughtered the entire audience. And it was this confidence that I don't even know. I think it was coming from all of the anxiety of the breakup and the Tony and the band and the duh and being alone and going from my parents' house to being on tour with all guys and, and the tension and looking out the window of my, you know, tour bus and seeing girls and going, you know, 
these girls are not against me. These are girls are for me. Yeah. You know, it went from like, oh, what she thinks she doing on stage? Like, hey, bitch. Yeah. And then to like, that's my girl. And and they're dressing like me and they're Gwenabees. Like what? Like it was like this weird shift from like this weird kind of like underground thing to like, I don't know. Like I'm me and, um, you know, I've, I dyed my hair blonde. Like all these things happened like through the breakup. And, um, and then it was like world knowledge that the breakup, it was very complicated, very you, lucky to not be absolutely mentally ill at this point. <laughs> the, the next two albums, Tragic Kingdom, you know, well, Let's just jump to Tragic Kingdom. And in this segment, we're going to say, what would Glenn Ballard ask Gwen Stefani on And the Writer Is? Okay. He has this anecdote. He says, Simple Kind of Life um, was written by herself on my high-strung D18 at my old studio in Encino. I subsequently (laughs) gave her a high-string guitar. I hope she still plays that magic song. He's a sweet man. Um, He he says, uh, as a lifelong athlete, this is an aside because as a lifelong athlete, I have always been impressed with her dedication to staying fit. What's her new workout? It oh. used to be three hours daily. <laughs> That's Glenn. Glenn said that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I, I was always trying to have a perfect, perfect body. <laughs> but also it took that kind of dedication to be able to do the kind of show that we did. Cause our show is quite um, physical, you know, and that came from wanting to be like fishbone or like all those bands we were talking about earlier, but simple kind of life was the first song I ever wrote on my own. Um, I was, I came home from the tragic kingdom tour and I was 29 years old. I had been with Gavin now, you know, this whole time I was really like, really like not happy at all. I mean, we're talking about not happy, broken up, cheating, did all the stuff that happened during that time. And also wanting to come home and be taken really seriously as a band and as a writer, you know, and and trying to go in and write those songs were, it just took so long. I mean, we talked about this before, like some of the songs that me and you've written were written in seconds because of you. Um, and we would just, I just felt like everything was on my shoulders as far as writing these songs. Eric wasn't involved at this point. Um, and we were just, we rented a house up in Mulholland and at Woodrow Wilson at this like hippie house. And um, we would just go there every day and try to like beat our heads against the wall, trying to write songs. And then Glenn Ballard came into the picture and again, finally somebody that could help us finish some songs. And I remember they were upstairs and he had tuned this guitar, just like he said. And at that point I was like, I'm going to learn how to play guitar. Cause I need, I don't want to be dependent on everyone, you know, to write these songs. I want to write a song and like, say, I don't want to have to tell Tom, no, not there. No, not there. No, not there. <laughs> like, you know, when you're trying to get him to play the chords you want. Um, and I just started playing and, and I just, it came out this song. I was like, I just, wrote a song and I ran upstairs. I was like, I think I wrote a song. And I started playing it for him. And there was a simple kind of life. And I mean, yeah. that's crazy. That's it was crazy. crazy. It was, it, that's why I believe in the Lord. And <laughs> like, we can bring that up again because it is crazy. It's like, how does, how do I sit there not knowing how to play guitar? Um, right. Not 
knowing what I'm doing at all and just write a song. Like it just came out of my mouth, like, you know, but yeah, that, that was an amazing moment. I never wrote another one on a guitar by myself. Um, so, <laughs> that's beyond nuts, but you know, rock is also a, a big album and you, you guys at, at this point have had three really significant albums and I, w- without going through each song and, and, you know, Clearly, there's after that, there's we start to learn about you as a solo musician. You know, I mean, it's you were still, you know, part of no doubt for a while, but it's it's only a few years after that that we really, you know, we you come out as a solo musician. Um, I think you're really right. And I think what the biggest difference and the biggest thing was um, everybody was humbled by Return of Saturn, which there's some amazing songs on that record. And it was almost like if we could have just edited a little bit, it would have been a really good record. But um, some of my favorite lyrics I've ever written are on that album. I can't listen to it on Return of Saturn. It's so painful for me. It's there's so much that is revealed in that record on songs that probably most people don't know that were so telling of the future and uh, it, even talking about it makes me want to cry. But Rocksteady was a revelation because the band, because of being humbled by not being as successful on our sophomore record um, and even the tour and everything, they were like open to writing with other people and collaborating. And the label was really pushing Jimmy was always really pushing for us to work, you know, outside of our genre and which I think is, and one of the groups that I really wanted to work with one I really wanted and Jimmy wanted me to work with was Pharrell and Pharrell at that point hadn't worked outside of, you know, hip hop, you know? And so we went into the studio and um, Pharrell was Pharrell, like a super babe like riding around on a a razor scooter inside like whatever that super fancy um studio he used to work at just a pimp i mean like Hmm. and just so hip-hop but not like like true to what he is like nerd you know nerd hip-hop guy fashion guy like and i was just so blown away by him and it was like a perfect um person for me to look in the eye and go, yeah, we're going to do something different right now. And I just knew it. I knew it. I, I can, I can remember standing in the hallway and just being like, so, so mesmerized by him and his beauty in and out. Um, and he played a couple of tracks. So we've never written to tracks. This is imagine back then hip hop was being born. So for us, it was, there was, there was certain lines like, Tony's like a huge hip hop fan, you know, but, but we were no doubt like, so you don't do this or you don't do that. You don't wear it in, you know, we have to have real drums or there was all these rules. Um, and we were about to break them big, you know, and he played us that beat to hella good, which is basically Michael Jackson. And, um, <laughs> and I had the idea that I wanted to write a song called hella good. Cause I had been up touring and up North and I'm like, yeah, you know, that's that's like a cool thing to say and um and we just wrote it right then and there and the whole band was in the room but it was like he had had the he had that melody for the chorus and i just came with the verse and um i wanted to write a song that was about 
that was lighthearted, like a dance song, you know, and uh, didn't have to be say too much because some of those dance songs, they don't say anything, you know. Why can't we? So that was that song. And it, it almost didn't make it on the record. You know, um, the band didn't want to put that on there at first. And I kept hearing, listening back to the demo going, what are you doing? You know, and but yeah, that record was really fun. We were going out every night to clubs, dancing and coming, staying up all night writing. Um, we were, you know, deep into like dance hall and working with all kinds of different, we got to work with Rick Ocasek. We got to work, we made a wish list of people and we got to work with all of them. So yeah, I mean, that was just one of those records where everybody was open and, um, and collaborating. And for me, my, my best work is when I, I collaborate. So when you start releasing solo music, you know, it, it's a huge, it's a, it's a sonic shift but it, it it looked like it was very freeing. I don't know if it was or not, but once you start releasing solo music, there was this, um, you know, there was always respect for your band as a Grammy-winning nominated band. But when you, when you started releasing music solo, all that respect kept following you. And there was a big embrace. Were you vulnerable? In a, were, you, were you, was it freeing? Was it when you, releasing your own music outside of having the history you had with those guys. What was that like? Um, it's hard to, I want to be really honest about where my head was at because I've had a lot of guilt about doing it because I didn't even call it a solo record. I call it a dance record because I just knew that um, there was a lot of music in me that was like from high school that wasn't just ska. Like, just like to paint the picture, Anaheim was Westside Anaheim where I lived at Loera. And then there was Anaheim High School, which was, was Eastside. And Eastside was a little more Latino. And my, like, basically that's where Tony went to school. And, um, the music was things like freestyle, like, um, like, you know, Debbie Deb, Lisa Lisa cult jam, like a lot of kind of pop going into pop as well, but there was like this under this kind of, I don't know if I thought it was kind of more underground dance that I loved so much. And, um, I wanted to do like almost not make fun of it, but make a fun, like almost like a guilty pleasure dance record. And when basically what had happened, we'd never had a break and a hiatus or anything. And Adrian had just gotten married and had his first baby and we were just sort of going to take a break. And it was literally, like I said, these ideas don't come from me. <laughs> like it was just like light bulb. I got to do this. And I just was like, I got to do it. And me and I said to Tony, I want to do this. And Tony's the one that listened to all that music back. He's the one he listened to Prince. He listened to Lisa, Lisa, all that stuff. And I said, we could do this together. Like we could make a fun record of that kind of music that we love, you know, from high school. And so we just started writing and it was really fun. And Tony was in a phase where he was really trying to learn how to, to write in a different way. He learned like piano and different things that he never did before. And, um, and then I was like, I want to do the circuit, which I didn't even know existed of, you know, I just went to Jimmy and I said, Jimmy, let's go. Like, I want to work with everybody. Let's, you know, you tell me who to do it with, <laughs> you know, I didn't even know that it, there was writers like that. I just didn't even know it existed. So 
I went out and I think the first session I took was with um, Linda Perry, who Four Non Blondes were on Interscope. So I knew her through that. But she also had just written that beautiful song for Christina. So she was all hot at the moment. And um, and she I was scared and I was intimidated to like because I again, being dyslexic and not knowing how to play an instrument really or know how I even write a song because I just it just happens. Um I didn't know if that was going to work if I go in with someone I don't know. And um, she was the one that said, what are you waiting for, bitch? <laughs> and I was like, I was like, look at that, he's stuck in a moving car. A scary car. <laughs> and I wrote, what are you waiting for? And, and it was like a, every person I went in with after that was, all I had to do was play the last song I wrote. It was like a fire. Like people were so into it. And I remember one of the last songs I did was uh with Jimmy Jam Terry Lewis like um I did this song Harajuku Girls which is I even like you know some songs that you write you you can say they're a masterpiece even though you're not being you're not you're not being conceited because I don't know how it it even came like it's so the lyrics are so crazy the melodies are so crazy I remember exactly when it happened and uh so yeah, there's, I just, there was a way to be completely self-indulgent and creative because I wasn't trying to make hits and I wasn't trying to, I was doing something that was just like a fun side project. And that's what Love Angel Music Baby ended up being. So, so happy I did it. Um, yeah, it Hollaback Girl, I know a lot of these songs come in it that and after but rich girl cool sweet escape the the mood the the success of these songs those are huge and there are obviously a bunch of others on there um it it starts to make you your own on your it launches you into your own journey you start a fashion line probably lamb probably starts around them yeah um you know we've had a lot of conversations about the things that sort of happened from then until even now. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know you released a, a lot of music between then. Um, sort of tell me about finding yourself after that level of success as a solo soloist, the band had been on hiatus. So then there's almost, you know, there's a, a new phase of, of who you are after the success of you as a solo artist. Tell me about Lamb until essentially now. Um, well... The Lamb until The Voice. Let's, until The Voice, let's okay. Oh, yeah. God. Um, this is so good for me. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I think that when I did the first solo record, um, I didn't feel finished. I felt very rushed. And I had told the band I wasn't going to go on tour. Um, I'm just doing it for fun, blah, blah, blah. But it was so full of life. Um, there was, it was a world that had been unleashed, you know, be, like you said, like the, the fashion side of it, the artwork side of it, the, there was just, there was so much. I had just gotten married, um, you know, and then what had happened was I said, I'm just going to tour and do a short tour just because I feel I had done one live show in Europe. And I said, this is, I can't, I have to do this. Like I have to see what it is live. I'm alive. I'm not even a record maker. I'm a live performer. That's what I am. You know? So I, I did a short tour, of course, 
you know, during rehearsals, I get pregnant uh, for the first time ever. And I'm like a complete bitch and don't know what's wrong with me. And I find out that I'm pregnant with Kingston (laughs) and uh, I twist my ankle working out before the tour. So I'm pregnant and I've never, I have a brand new band. I have never done costume changes. I have dancers. Um, I, I'm pregnant and all the rest. So I go on that first tour. It was really hard. (laughs) I was very sick. Um, I had this big secret that I was pregnant and, um, that I felt ripped off. Like I didn't really get to enjoy that tour. So I also had all these other songs left over that I didn't, that didn't make the record that were still really good songs. And if I really just went in the studio, wrote a few more songs, I'd have a whole nother record. And so Jimmy was like, you have to go in with this guy, Akon. And I was like, well, I don't really see how I'm going to do that. My baby's five weeks old. Um, and I don't want to go in with Akon because he is an African rapper. Okay. I don't really see how that really has anything to do with me, you know? Um, anyways, he's like, if there's anything you do in your whole life, please take this session. So I get the baby, I get the baby nurse. We go to the session and I, um, I meet my homie Akon, who's like instantly, we have everything in common and we write a song called sweet escape. And, um, together, like just, he's super talented, but I, I was, I was doing my thing as well. So it was felt very like meant to be. And, and that was that record. So then I ended up saying, I'm going to do a world tour. I got to do it. And, you know, I felt guilty because I know the band was waiting on me basically. And I had ever and every intention to go back and do the band after that. But I had, took the baby and I toured the world. And the month that I got home, I did a hundred and something like six or 20 shows. I don't know. And um, I got pregnant that month with my second baby. And the band was like, fuck you. <laughs> like, you know, how do you do that? Like, and then I was determined. I was like, I'm going to write this record pregnant. Like, it's going to be fine. Like I have a toddler and I'm going to be able to do it all. And nope, couldn't do it. Got super fat. Like <laughs> I had the baby. And then like right after Zuma was born, my manager and he, we had like a, a lunch meeting. He was like, how about you go on tour and get inspired for the No Doubt record? And I was like, great idea. So I had four months to get to lose 50 pounds and, um, and have two babies to get ready to go on this No Doubt tour where that's where we went out and we did like, I think it was the greatest hits tour, I think. It was an amazing tour. Um, and felt every night like I was going to die. Like every night I was, I had visions of the ambulance scraping me off the stage. Cause I was just too tired. I had done a world tour. I'd put two records out. I had two babies. I had nothing else to give. Like it was done and I was married and I was, you know, so, um, came back and started trying to write the no doubt record, which ended up being push and shove, which, you know, was not a good, like not a good three years for me. I was not well. I was, you know, every time I left the house to go write a song, I would feel guilty. I was missing out on the kids or why would I take, I would get there and I would, nothing would happen. No song would come out. So then I would be like, I just wasted seven hours. I could have been home with my kids knocking my head against like the floor. Like, and, um, and everything was really hard for us. I think at that point, because I didn't really necessarily, I felt too vulnerable to work with an outside writer. Um, They didn't want to, they weren't 
bringing what they needed to bring for me to bring what I needed to bring. And it was just, and there was a lot when we started working with Spike, who was the producer um, who had only mixed all of our records, but we never produced with him. It was just a lot of compromising in a way that I was going into that direction where I was creatively and they were wanting to go back. So everything, the production on the album sounds like such a huge mashup of so many things. It's like, you can't even wrap your head around it, but there are a lot of really good songs on that record, uh, lyrics and stuff like that. Um, it came out and it was, it didn't do anything. And everybody was just like flying home from Europe going, what, what this never happened to us before. Like, and what are we going to do now? And that's when we decided we were going to go in the studio, um, and at that point, things were changing. It, you could you could make more songs and put more songs out. You didn't have to just put a record out and it's over. You know what I'm saying? So Jimmy was like, here, go in with this person and that person. And, and we tried doing that, but it was just, again, just not working. Like not, it just, we didn't know what, it was too conflicted, I guess. So then what happened? I get a call uh, from the Lord, knock, knock, you're pregnant. <laughs> and I get a little baby Apollo in my belly at 43 years old. Um, after, you know, you know, a lot of not having babies for a long time. So that was, um, a shock and a blessing and just what I probably needed at that time. And, um, that's when, uh, basically he was, I think four or five weeks old when Pharrell called me and was like, I know that you just had a baby, but I'm playing Coachella. You want to come hop on stage and do Hollaback? And I'm like sitting there like, just, just like after, you know, with like my body just all over the place going, I think I can make that work. And, um, I packed the baby up and went to a sand, sandstorm in, in Palm Springs and, and got on stage with him and, and did that. And then like the next day or something, the voice, the man, my manager, he wasn't even my manager at the time, Irving, his wife called me and said, Christina Aguilera is pregnant. Um, she can't do the voice. You want to do it. And I was like, and my lawyer was over and my parents and they were like, we were showing the baby off, you know, like they were just all over visiting. And I thought, I just got the craziest call. Like the voice wants me to be on the voice. I was like, is that a cool show? Like I mean, my parents are like, Oh my God, I watched the show. <laughs> like, you know, and, um, and I, I was like, I'm going to, and my, my niece was there and she's like, you got to do it. And then I did it. And it was the craziest thing. Cause I was nursing a baby. He was only four months when I started, um, never did anything like that before. It was so inspiring musically. Like I was like, wow, I'm surrounded by music. Oh, by the way, then I find out Pharrell is going to be on the same season. And I'm oh. like, there's no way Pharrell's doing the voice. I was like, there's no way. And it was true. So um, that was pretty awesome too, to have somebody that I knew, but I didn't know him in that role. So it was really scary. It was really scary. And of course I didn't know Blake, who he, that he even existed. And, and I knew Adam barely because Adam had just called me to be on one of his songs. Um, and we had, so that, it was a weird timing. Um, let's talk about Blake for a second, because, you know, very sweet human, very funny human, 
Um, I love how much he makes you happy. And I just want to talk about how, you know, how Blake comes into your life in, <laughs> you know, most people meet somebody maybe at a bar or on, on a dating <laughs> app and you meet <laughs> you know, a couple chairs away. So <laughs> about, about meeting Blake. Um, I met Blake obviously on the set of the voice. Um, it's so funny too, because I had a nanny at the time, um, a good nanny, um, that is from Texas that, um, she was like, Ooh, Blake's hot. Like, yeah, that's cool. I was like, this is like a kind of more like a, she watches football and like drinks beer and like is cowboy cowboys. And you know what I mean? Like, I was like, Oh, you think so? I was like, I don't get that, but okay. You know, (laughs) but only to later find out that she was super right. Um, but yeah, I just, I met Blake that first season and I remember thinking I felt so jealous of him because him, he, I felt like he, he was just so, um, it was interesting being on the show because I've never been in a competition about music. Like it was just so, and I'm not like competitive person. So, and I don't play games and I don't feel comfortable in that. So it was very unusual that I was on this, in this situation, but everyone kept wanting to be on Blake's team. And I didn't really know who he was. And I was like, why did they want to be on his team? So I started looking up his songs and I saw this song that he had written called over you. And then I realized that this guy is super talented. And I started getting these thoughts in my head like, well, because I was kind of desperate at that time because I had started right around that same time we missed this part. I had started talking to him about doing more music to do when I was going to be on The Voice. So, like, I started working with Benny Blanco. He was kind of overseeing a project for me, um, which was really weird. Now, you have to remember, I'm old as hell. So, uh, all of a sudden, you are you outgrow everybody, and you're like a woman, and you're a mom. And you're like, okay, I'm going to go work with this 22-year-old boy, Benny, or whatever he was at the time. I was like, this is just weird, like, that he's trying to tell me how I should do this kind of song or who I should work with. And I don't I'm out of touch now. And like, it was, I'm just being honest. Like it was very strange, you know? And, and, um, and meanwhile, then I got pregnant during that project and I had worked with him and we had done a song called, um, baby don't cry that I changed to baby don't lie. (laughs) It's the first time I've ever, and that was written by Ryan Tedder and, it was this whole thing that I didn't know if I was going to put out spark the fire. Cause I'd written that with Pharrell or baby don't lie. It was a whole thing. Oh, we missed that part. Let's just, <laughs> but, <laughs> but meanwhile, being on the voice, I just had gotten so inspired to want to do new music again, because just being around it and being in that role, it made me think so much about all of the wake of work that I had done and how I had had such an unusual success from just being me like, and being so um, unbelievably untrained or coached or um, um, dyslexic or all the things that I am like to lead up to, to having all of these songs. It's just, it's crazy. And and to be a writer, like, I don't even know that I can write songs, but I do. Um, I do that. So it just made me really inspired. And, and Blake 
Blake was like a different genre. So I'd never been around like country. So it inspired me like to think in my fantasy that I would maybe write a song with Blake someday. Yeah, work outside the box. Like I wanted to work outside the songs in country now. Huh? I know. I mean, that's so. We're we're skipping over a lot because that was the first season I didn't even know Blake. And meanwhile, like every break during that season, I'd be like nursing a baby. Like I was just had a baby. So it wasn't until the following season, which would have been um, 2015, right? I don't even know. Maybe it was 16. Um, is when we all came back to the voice and we both found out that we were both, our lives were over and we were getting divorces. And then we started like talking and, um, and being really friendly and uh, yeah. And then now I'm engaged to him much <laughs> crazy, <laughs> but that was five years ago. So crazy. Uh, we're going to go into our next segment. That's okay. going to be five for five. I'm going to list five things and I just want you to tell me, uh, first thing that comes off the top of your head. Oh, okay. First, I'm swollen right now. By the way, <laughs> you're, you're you're killing it. We'll start with um, our co-writer Luke Nikolai. Yes. What has come to my head? Yes. <laughs> there you go. He introduced me to you. Oh, I like that. I like that guy. I mean, I guess before we get to that, we can even say like, uh, we'll go. Uh, I want, well, let's finish this and then we can go into, let me reintroduce myself. Okay. Um, let's go with Kingston. Um, oh my God. Too many words to, to say a one answer thing, but um, um, honored that God chose me. <laughs> go with Zuma. Um, my heart melts. Is that that? Are you looking for these kinds of answers? <laughs> whatever, whatever you want. There are no rules. Yeah, yeah I love my, I love him. Apollo. Thank God, thank God for him. Let's do Blake Shelton. It's it's too hard to do one word answers for these unbelievably like important people in my life. You know, Blake is he saved my life, and he is uh, you know I feel like the the one person in this world that has the same morals and standards, and you know like and we think we don't think the same, but we we complement each other so well. And I just feel like I have now a chance for happiness for the rest of my life. You know, it's it's exciting. That um, this next segment, John, what would John Janik, the head of Interscope, ask Gwen Stefani? He says, "How is she so level-headed and an amazing person while being an icon? How are you so level-headed?" Um, I don't feel level-headed all the time, especially how we all feel today after yesterday. Um. I think that the one thing that's been the thread for me is when my mom planted the seed of faith in me. Um, I think that I always come back to my faith and my belief in God and my purpose. Um, and it's, it's only really recently that I really truly could say without 
I used to not be confident in the gift of being a songwriter or performer, whatever I am um, until now, but realizing that that truly was something handed to me um, that I'm now, I get to share with people. And I just, I just surrendered years ago and said, whatever you show me the way, um, there's no other reason to be here. This is just a test. So I'm just here to participate in with my gift. The one thing that I have to offer, which is, music and hopefully being a good mom and maybe a good wife upcoming friend and all those other things that we get to do here. Um, but yeah, I think it would be definitely my faith is what's kept me sane ish. Well, thank you for doing this. Um, you, you know, for people who don't know, who haven't had the pleasure of working with you, I don't think people realize and this is this is what happens when somebody becomes an icon as an artist. A lot of people don't recognize it what that that they have the capability of being a really good songwriter, and you come in with such specific ideas of what you want to write about, and that is so unusual. You don't come in it's it, you're willing to listen to other people's ideas. You let the best ideas win. You have no ego in the room. You you could. There's so many people who are in a similar position who don't collaborate with such an open heart, and it makes it so enjoyable that we've been able to write so much together because it's just an enjoyable process. Like it's not. It is. You're so interactive in it, and you're so. You're you have you have ideas that are of what you, who you want to be and what you want to say. And I, I hope that as you continue on this journey of this next phase of reintroducing yourself. <laughs> Your idea, by the way. <laughs> well, I mean, man, we, how many, how many songs do we have together? Nine? Something like that? Like we've lost already. Hopefully another one next week. Yeah. I mean, we're, it, it, um, you have this ability though, to bring out the best in your collaborators because of who you are in the session. And I, I just really appreciate that we've developed this relationship over the last six months or a year or whatever it's been. But, um, you know, I'm, it's so fun watching people get reintroduced to you, you know? I mean, how does it feel? You've just released this new single. How does it feel? Uh, it's such a crazy time outside of... Um you know, this music, it's, it's hard to know what to feel like with a global pandemic, you know, so many political things going on. Everyone's scared. I'm scared. We're, um, and then on top of it, uh, I get this blessing again. Like I get this opportunity out of nowhere. I mean, I didn't know how I was going to be able to write music again, you know, it's just how, like it, it's crazy right now. And because of zoom, <laughs> I was able to, um, I, I, I honestly believe that every idea I have just comes from, not from me. So I think that being able to do this more and like that people actually seems like I made a little splash. Like there was actually like a little water that splashed. Like I was like, I was, I, I was standing in the kitchen um, the day that the song came out. And I don't know if I told you this, but Blake came in and he was like, 
oh my God, you're number 16. Like iTunes, you know, I know there's lots of charts and everything means whatever it means, but um, iTunes is a thing. And I just burst out crying and I didn't even know that I felt like that. Um, I think it was because I had felt like, um, well, the whole reason we wrote Reintroduce Myself was feeling a bit like an underdog or feeling a bit like over or like that no one would really want to listen anymore, or, which I'm fine with. Like I've had my time, like 30 years of, you know, being able to keep having blessings. I'm good, but you know, I just, the one thing that really does uh, still fuel my fire is writing music and being able to share it is like another level. <laughs> Cause it's like, you get kind of addicted to that feeling of the taste of blood of sharing it with, you know what I mean? It's like having that song that you know is so good. Um, that's so true and honest and real. And then being able to share it and have other people have that, that reaction or that feeling is just, it's too good, you know? So, um, you never want it to go away, even though you grow up and be a woman and have kids and a mom, <laughs> you still want to do it. So I feel like so good. I feel so good. And, um, I think the one thing that's been great is knowing that the kind of record I wanted to make, which was a record that is full of just happiness and joy and goes right back to the beginning. And it's interesting. We just talked about the beginning because, you know, when my son was discovering music, he's Kingston. We talked about him too. He's, you know, discovering music and it's so crazy to watch um, him find, you know, he went from green day to now he's into the like, you know, He's just into all different kinds of things, but um, it made me think so much about me in eighth grade discovering ska music and discovering reggae and how weird that is <laughs> that like suddenly I'm like a reggae girl, this white girl from like Anaheim, like what? Like, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to kind of go back there again. And once I said that with the different collaborators that I was going to write with, everybody got so excited and it was so natural and easy. And when I met you, I think what you're really, really, really good at is getting in, in my head um, and asking the right questions. And that's probably why this podcast is such a huge success and so fun to listen to is because the questions you ask, because you're unbelievably smart um, and intuitive. And I think that like by that first moment that I met you, I didn't know who you were. I didn't know. Um, I just knew that Luke said, you got to meet my homie, like this guy he's like my mentor. Like you, you got to work with, you got to work with Ross. And I was like, sure, I'm, I'm open to doing anything. I'll work with whoever. And the, and I didn't know, cause you feel intimidated. Like you meet someone and if you're me, you think they're going to think all these things and they're going to expect you to be creative and these bring all this stuff or, or they're going to be judging you or they're going to have their opinions. You just have insecurities, you know, before you go into actually getting naked and like be intimate with someone you don't know over a Zoom to try to write new music after 30 years of music. So I just didn't know what to think, but I knew right away that you were a similar tone, like as far as the way that your lyrics come. And like we have a similar sense of humor. And I think that we were on the same level when it came to like wanting to be honest and true and real and just say it and like, and be lighthearted. So there was just a chemistry and a comfortableness that happened. And after that first song, which was, let me reintroduce myself, by the way, everybody, um, I knew that I needed to get more of you. And it was just, you know, again, like, it was like that, like our, my guardian angel saying, 
you got to work more with Ross. <laughs> but it feels so good, and it's it's not over. And I think that it's just um, amazing. It's starting. It's just starting. Like these things just take a long time, and and just it's just so fun. I mean, there's there are so many people rooting for you. This is it's so fun. I'm I'm excited for our session next week, as I always am, and uh, send my best to Blake and. No, I want to keep talking to you. No, <laughs> look, this is this is just our this is just our first episode. We'll just have to do like we'll just have to keep doing them. It's so cool. You're so cool, Ross. And it's you're. I was saying to Blake today. I go. That's a, that guy's a really good guy. You're a really good guy. You're a good person in the world. And um, I'm so happy I got to work with you and now I get to talk to you on your show and be considered a writer. I'm so honored. <laughs> You're such a good writer. You're crazy. You know, and also one thing, I know that this is like, I'm still going, but the, you know, um, a lot of, a lot of artists don't talk about, don't even talk about collaborating. You know, they don't want it to be known that they, you know, you'd, you'd be surprised how many artists don't, don't, and uh, well, we don't have to go into who they are, but like there's so many that, that don't even want to talk about that they ever wrote the song with somebody else or that somebody produced the song or something. Instead, you're like, oh my God, I wrote this with my friends and, I, and I'm in this session with my friends here. Or, I mean, we have Busby that we're both friends with and we have, you know, we have all these people that you, you named so many people that we're both friends with throughout this process. But that's the thing is you're always one of the writers. You totally are. You, no one ever thinks, you know, in the room. I mean, everyone thinks of you as one of the writers. No one's like, you don't treat people like they're, you know, like they're not, they're not peers. You just go into it and be like, you do go in, into it right from the get-go. But I'm nothing, like, you're, like, just so people know, I've watched you do things that literally blow my mind. Like, I mean, I've watched you write a song while we're talking. And I'm like, when did you fucking write that? And you were like, while we were talking. I was like, but we were talking. And then you like actually sing a song back at me about my life. <laughs> I'm like, you what? say colorful things. Huh? You say colorful things. Really? Well, I, I feel like. I feel like I've learned over the time, like how, what my role is right now in this record. I know where my, what my role is. I've had different roles during different records and different songs, you know, like we all kind of do, you know what I mean? So, um, with you, I'm going to sit back and let you take the wheel because shit, like you, you, you know, you're, you're so talented. Um, but it, I love, my favorite thing to do is to walk back, in my brain through a song and how each part happened and when it happened. And I said this, and then you said that. And then all of a sudden this part came and it was like, no, we were going to do this. And then I love it. It's just, cause it's such a, it's, it's, yes, I know that, that there's math and science behind songs and chords and Mozart and all these things that I have nothing. I know nothing about, but there's, there's a magical mystery about songs and how they just all of a sudden are there. And yeah. And especially when they're real and they talk back your life to you and they say things to you afterward that you didn't even know you were saying until you are listening back and you're like, oh my God. You were like, oh my God. My middle name's Jacob. <laughs> Anyways, um, thank you. Love you. I'll see you next week. Okay, bye. 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 bye.
Awesome. Thank you so much. Have All a right. good one. I'm going to go. I'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silverstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.